All right, well, let's get into our sermon. If you have a Bible with you or if you want to use one of the red ones nearby, we are going to be looking at uh, the book of Acts, chapter 4, verse 36. If you are using one of the red Bibles, that is on page 532. We're looking at Acts, chapter 2, verses 36 and following. We're continuing our sermon series through the book of Acts, and we've been looking at the launch of this church, the launch of the first followers of Jesus now taking the message of the gospel to the ends of the earth. And last, for the last couple of weeks, we've been focusing on what has, what has made this church unique. What have they been devoted to? And we saw that they were devoted to the apostles' teaching, that they were devoted to one another, and that they were devoted to gathering and worshiping. And so we pick up after that, and right before this church is about to explode to the ends of the earth, we get this story. It's an interesting story. Maybe you've heard of it before. And right here, right before the movement is about to take off and breach the wider world, we're going to see what God has to teach them and teach us. But before we look at this story this morning, I think it's important for us to remember why the church exists in the first place. Why does the church exist in the first place? Remember that God sent his son Jesus into the world in order to save sinners, to bring about the redemption from our sins, and to begin to recreate, to restore the created world. It's easy to look outside or to turn on the news or to read the paper and remember that the world is not the way that it's supposed to be. And it wasn't created like this. No, when, when God created the world, he said that this is good. But sin crept in, and it began to decay and destroy everything that we know. But God had a plan, and his plan was that he would send his son, and through his life, death, and resurrection, would make an end to sin and begin to restore the world as far as the curse is found. And the church has been entrusted with this message that through faith in Jesus Christ alone, by grace alone, we can be a part of that. We can have our sins forgiven. We can have everlasting life. And so we've been entrusted with that message, not only to remind ourselves and one another, but to share it with our neighbors and invite them into the story with us. This is why the church exists, to embody this culture of grace where anyone can come and be welcomed. This is the culture of grace that Jesus said, go and take it to the world. Have you ever been to a fancy restaurant where everything's pristine and nice and th there's there's detail put into the menu and what the chef's going to make. I mean, the detail even goes as far as what goes on the walls and the aesthetics of the environment. And good managers, really good restaurants have good managers where they keep in mind from the moment a customer pulls into the parking lot 
until the time they leave, they want that customer's experience with them to be so enjoyable. They put so much work into creating such a great culture of that restaurant that keeps people coming back again and again. And we know that things like this, it's so much easier to root out a bad culture or an issue with the culture even before the door is open. It's much harder after years of operating this restaurant for the manager to change something. We're going to see in this story that just before the church takes to the world, there is a threat to the culture of grace in the church. And Jesus, he's going to stamp it out because he needs this church to embody his grace. That's what will bring people back again and again to experience his love. And so there is a threat to the gospel of grace, the culture of grace. And so as we read this story, we're going to ask three questions. What is that threat? What is the alternative? And what does that do to the church? What is the threat? What's the alternative? And what does that do to the church? Let's read this story starting in Acts chapter 4, verses 36 and following. The context of this is everyone has everything in common. They're selling things and giving to those who are in need. And so the story picks up here. Thus Joseph, who is also called by the apostle Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, he sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. But a man named Ananias and his wife Sapphira, they sold a piece of property and with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard of it. And the young men rose and wrapped him up, and they carried him out and buried him. And after an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me, whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yeah, for so much. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. And when the young men came in, they found her dead and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. Now many signs and wonders were regularly being done among the people by the hands of the apostles. And they were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. And more than ever, 
believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats, that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we pray now through your spirit that you would open up your word to our hearts and our minds. Lord, show us your grace. Show us your love. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So what is the threat? Well, the story contrasts two scenes, two two parties, two events. The first, Joseph. He took a, a property that he owned and he sold it and he took that money and he gave it to the apostles' feet and he said, take this and do with it as you will. Help those who are in need. And this gift, this, this act of charity was so needed and important and appreciated, the apostles actually began to call Joseph Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. We're going to read about Barnabas throughout the rest of the book of Acts. This is just the introduction of him. But Barnabas becomes one of the traveling companions of Paul. He becomes so crucial to the life of the early church. They celebrated this act of grace. And two others in particular, Ananias and Sapphira, they saw this. And they wanted it too. And so they came together and said, hey, we've got this property. Let's sell it and let's take that money and give it to the church. They can give it to the poor. And they did that, but they did conspire beforehand to only give a certain amount of that money, which was fine to do, except that they lied and they said, this is what that property was worth. This is all we got. Ananias and Sapphira They looked at the acclaim and the praise that Barnabas had received by his act of generosity, and they desired that. And so that led them to conspire and to lie and to deceive, hoping that they would get the acclaim as well. Peter sees this, and in verse uh, 3 of chapter 5, he says, Ananias Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? Ananias and Sapphira, his wife, they wanted to deceive the community into believing that they were just as good, if not better, than others. Luke is highlighting for us in this comparison The difference between someone whose heart has been shaped by a culture of grace, Barnabas, and the hearts of those who have fallen prey to what we would call moralism. Moralism, that is the threat facing the early church. And at the heart of moralism is this desire to be approved and accepted on the basis of my behavior. Moralism is the desire to be approved or accepted on the basis of my behavior. Moralism, it's like putting on a mask. 
It's like putting on this mask of righteousness that on the outside, your appearance, your actions, your behavior looked so pleasant and beautiful. But we put on masks because we don't like what's underneath. Moralism is like putting on a mask of righteousness that covers something truly ugly underneath, the ugliness of sin. Have you ever been down to Lakeview Cemetery? It's just right down Mayfield Road, on the way to Little Italy, off to the right. It's gorgeous. It's, it's beautiful. It's this old cemetery. There's, there's sort of trails around, and you can walk and enjoy a nice day out when it warms up. There's some great views. Um, I believe President Garfield is, is in fact, buried there. Uh, but you'll notice as you walk around in this beautiful cemetery, these just gorgeous, beautiful sepulchers with huge old stones and columns and these ornate carvings that artists spent years carving. It's gorgeous. But do you know what's on the inside of those tombs? Dead bodies. On the inside of the beautiful tombs are dead bodies. This is what Jesus was getting at when he said to be aware of being like whitewashed tombs that are filled with the bones of dead men. The threat is to put on a mask to hide the ugliness of the sin underneath. That is what the early church was facing, this threat to the culture of grace. It's when people fall prey to this threat. They look beautiful on the outside, but they are dead on the inside. They have all the outward appearance of looking like a good Christian. I mean, Ananias and Sapphira were generous with their money. It was hard to tell that underneath this mask was ugliness. That's why we put it on. We know that there's something not good underneath, and so we project what we think other people want us to do. It's so hard to tell when moralism has crept in because on the outside, we just look like good people, right? But it's so destructive. Moralism can be so destructive. I heard this story in 2012 in uh, a town called Holmesfold, I think, no, yeah, Holford, Somerset, in Great Britain. There's a gentleman by the name of Stuart Moffat, and he had three little girls. And one Easter morning, they woke up and got into the car already. They drove right outside of town, and they were meeting up with friends and, and family and, and neighbors from school for a fun Easter egg hunt. And so all the kids go running throughout the field looking for plastic eggs uh, and all the parents are off on one side, and as they're standing, uh, Stuart looks over, and he sees that there's this little boy, probably three or four years old, standing off to the side, and he's down looking at an egg, and it looks like he's standing on this egg. And Stuart's wondering, well, all, all the kids are over here looking at eggs, but there's this little boy over here. I don't remember there being an egg over there. So Stuart begins to walk over there, and 
as he gets closer and closer to this child, his understanding of what's taking place becomes more and more clear. This egg is it's a little bit bigger than all the other eggs. It's a, it's a dark green color. And as he steps up closer, there's got some bumps on it. And it doesn't look like all the other eggs. And when he gets right up to the boy, he realizes this is no egg at all. This little boy is standing on a grenade. And so Stuart quickly removes the boy gets all the kids away from that side of the field. They call in the bomb squad and they confirm, yes, this is a grenade from World War II that has been lying in this field for over 50 years. And they destroy it, thankfully. But how terrifying is that? This grenade looked like an egg and they were finding eggs and this boy put himself and everyone else in so much danger. Friends, moralism is hard to notice because it looks like what the Bible calls us to, a life of generosity, a life of sacrificial living, giving of your time and your talents and your treasures. It is hard to root out moralism because on the outside, it looks the same for everyone. Moralism looks like Christianity on the outside, but its only power is to destroy. Desiring to be accepted on the basis of your behavior has no place in the church. It is a threat to the gospel. It is a threat to the culture of grace that Jesus has given us and has told us to take to the world. But it is so hard to spot in our own lives. How many of you growing up felt like you had to hide your sin? How many of you grew up feeling you couldn't let people know what was going on in your life out of fear of shame? This fear of being found out and found guilty. How many of you felt like you had to wear a mask? Whether it was at church or in your home or out in public. How many of you felt like you had to be this good little boy or good little girl? You couldn't be true about who you were. You couldn't be honest about what you were going through because you believed that your acceptance and approval was on the basis of your own performance and behavior. Friends, that has no place in the church. And I'm sorry if that was your experience growing up. So what does it look like today? What are some ways that we can know whether or not we have fallen prey to moralism? One one author has uh, given us two diagnostic questions, and I think these are really helpful. First is this, how do you respond to personal suffering and to pain? A moralist is quick to ask God, what have I done to deserve this? Doesn't God see all the good that I've done, and this is how I'm repaid? Or what about this? How does your heart feel whenever you see someone else benefiting from God's 
grace and not you? Do you sink down into jealousy? Or do you leap with joy and celebrate with them? Have you ever asked, why did God do that for them but not for me? Here are some others. Have you ever been quick to minimize your own sin and yet maximize the sin of others? Growing bitter and critical in your own heart when you look at your brother and sister in Christ. Evaluating your performance against theirs. Have you grown cold and distant from God? Often, disillusionment towards God is the result of realizing that this faith is not the easygoing life that you once thought it was and you feel like God owes you because you've done everything for him. But you've grown cold. Do you feel ashamed of your sin and fearful of being caught or found out? This is the root of moralism, that feeling that you will never be accepted or approved unless you execute this perfect behavior. That is the threat to the culture of grace that the church was seeing in front of them. So what's the alternative? What did Jesus do here to stamp it out, and what is the alternative that we have? We Instead of being moralists, are called to be people that believe the gospel. We are called to be people who believe the gospel to be true. This very message that Jesus entrusted to us, that we are supposed to take to our neighbors, we need to be people, first and foremost, that believe this message to be true. Just look at the lengths in which Jesus went to make sure that the church understood they were to be a culture of grace. I mean, he took drastic steps. Look what he did in verse 5. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. Jesus was willing to do whatever it took to protect this culture of grace because he knew what it cost him to give us the gospel. He knew that it cost his own life. This is a matter of life and death, that we better get this right. The gospel is essential to the life of the church. This is the very bedrock of the message that we proclaim. So what is it? What is this gospel? How does the gospel enable us to remove the mask and be honest about who we really are? One of the best verses that lays out exactly what the gospel is and does for us is from Paul's letter to the Corinthians. In 2 Corinthians 5.21, Paul tells us what the gospel is. Martin Luther called this the great exchange because it perfectly shows what is exchanged between us and Jesus in the gospel. Look at this passage from 2 Corinthians 5.21. For our sake, he made him, so that's for our sake, God made Jesus to be sin who knew no sin 
so that in him we, sinners that we are, might become the righteousness of God. This is a beautiful verse about the gospel. The gospel says that we are the biggest sinners. We are the worst sinners. Sinners deserving wrath and punishment. But that great sin was transferred onto Jesus. He took our sin. All of that guilt, all of that shame, all of that sin now goes to Jesus. But that's not all. Through faith in him, the perfection, the righteousness of Jesus is transferred to us. This is the great exchange. Our sin goes to Jesus and his perfection now comes to us. The gospel, friends, has these two components. First, you are forgiven. Everything you've done, past, present, anything you will do in the future, by faith has been put on Jesus, nailed to the cross. It is done. It is paid for. Your debt is gone. But the second component is so important because not only are you forgiven, through faith in him, you are made righteous. You are credited with the righteousness of Jesus Christ so that when the father looks at you, he does not see your sin. He does not see your guilt. He does not see your shame. He sees his son, Jesus. His resume becomes Yours. It's as if you have done everything that Jesus has done, who perfectly lived a life of obedience, love, and worship of his Father and of love for one another. That is yours. If moralism is this desire to be accepted and approved on your own behavior, friends, the gospel is knowing that you are accepted and approved on the basis of Jesus' behavior. It's not because of anything you have done. It is everything that he has done for you. It's like this. Suppose you've got a home mortgage that you've defaulted on. And you're a couple months behind and your credit cards are being declined at the store. You lost your job and you don't got income coming. I mean, there's just hardly any hope in front of you. And so one day you, you put on your nicest outfit and you go to the bank down the street and you walk in, you're on your knees and you're begging, please, can you show me mercy? Can you show me grace? Just this once. And the bank teller says, all right, I'm in a good mood today. Just this once, I'll forgive your debts. We think that that's the gospel that we come to him begging for mercy. And he says, all right, but just this once, you better not mess up again. Friends, that's not the gospel. The gospel is you walk out of there forgiven. And as you're walking to your car, you hear the door slam open and the CEO comes running out and says, mister, wait, there's been a mistake. Can you come back in? We've got more work to do. And you come back in, and he doesn't take you to the counter. He goes to the back door, the one with the keypad, and he opens it up. And you go to the back office, the CEO's office, and they sit you down in, in their chair, and they're sitting across from you, and he hands you their keys and says, it's all yours. 
You're in charge now. You, you've got the keys to the safe. You're in charge of the accounts. It's all yours. Friends, the gospel is not just that your sins are forgiven, but that in Jesus, everything is yours. Jesus has given you himself. He has credited his own righteousness to you. And because that is always true, because we are now accepted not on our own behavior, but because of Jesus, we are allowed to take off our mask. We have the security to be honest about who we are. We have the safety to confess our sins, not just to God, but to one another. Knowing that our Father always loves us. As one pastor has said, it's okay to be a big, ugly sinner clothed in the righteousness of Christ. It is really okay to be a big, ugly sinner clothed in the righteousness of Christ. Pastor Ray Ortland talks about this difference between trying to pursue a life of perfection and enjoying the safety and security of a life filled with grace. He talks about it as if we were being married to two different people, being married to Mr. Law and married to Mr. Grace. And he writes this, we were married to Mr. Law. He was a good man in his own way, but he did not understand our weakness. He came home every evening and he asked, so how was your day? Did you do what I told you to do? Did you make the kids behave? Did you waste any time? Did you complete everything I put on your to-do list? So many demands and expectations. And as hard as we tried, we just couldn't be perfect. We could never satisfy him. It was a miserable marriage because Mr. Law always pointed out our failings. And the worst of it was, he was always right. But his remedy was always the same, do better tomorrow. And we didn't because we couldn't. Friends, when we desire to be accepted by God on the basis of our own behavior, it is joyless and futile, just as this marriage to Mr. Law looks like. He says, just do better tomorrow, and we can't. But the gospel invites us into a new marriage. Ray continues, and he says this, then Mr. Law died, and we were remarried, this time to Mr. Grace. Our new husband, Jesus, he comes home every evening, and the house is a mess the children are being naughty, dinner is burning on the stove, and we have even had other men in the house during the day. Still, he sweeps us up into his arms and says, I love you. I have chosen you. I have died for you, and I will never leave you nor forsake you. Our hearts melt. We don't understand such love. We expect him to despise us and reject us and humiliate us, but he treats us so well. We are so glad to belong to him now and forever, and therefore we long to fully please him because he has given everything to us. 
Friends, this kind of relationship, a relationship with Mr. Grace himself, Jesus Christ, it frees us to be honest. It frees us to be real. We have this eternal security. He says, I love you. I have died for you. I have chosen you. You are mine forever, no matter what you have done. And because we have that security, we can be real. We can take off our mask and show how broken we really are. It is really okay to be big, ugly sinners clothed in the righteousness of Christ. We need to be on guard against this threat of moralism. This threat to cover up our weaknesses and our sin. Rather, we need to be a people so in love with this culture of grace, so in love with Mr. Grace himself, that we feel the freedom and safety to be who we really are. Finally, we need to see what happens when a church takes hold of this. What can a gospel church do? What can a culture of grace do in a church and in a community? In our passage, we see what's happening. People are selling their possessions and giving them to the poor. People are living with one heart and mind. They have all things in common. It is this beautiful community of living together. But look what else happens in verse 14 and 15. More than ever, believers were being added to the Lord, both men and women, so that even some carried out the sick from the streets, laid them on cots and mats, so that Peter, if he would come by, at least his shadow might fall on them and be healed. The people also gathered from the towns from around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits. They were all healed. When moralism infests a community, they become a club of righteousness. But when we take hold of the gospel and experience and embody a culture of grace, when we cling to that truth, the church becomes a hospital for sinners. This is exactly what Jesus wanted of the church. This is why he came. He did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. He came not for the, the healthy, but for the sick. They are the ones that need a physician. If you want to experience that culture of grace, come to him with everything that you are all that you are, and find in him the rest for your soul. Find in him the great physician. If we want to connect to Jesus, if today you feel distant from him, if you want to be healed, if you want to be made well, if you want to experience what it feels like to be part of this culture of grace, to enjoy being married to Mr. Grace, to know deep in your heart that he loves you no matter what, take off your mask. Come to him. Be honest about who you are and rest in his open arms. Do not be like Ananias, claiming to be one person 
but on the inside being different. Come into the light. Walk into the light. The blood of Jesus is ready to purify you from all unrighteousness. That's what we said in our call to confession. Maybe there's something that you've done that has made you feel guilty or shamed this morning. Or maybe there's something ongoing that's weighing on you. I know that kind of fear and anxiety, and it's not just fear of being found out. It's this fear of not only being found out, but being rejected and unloved. Friends, the gospel says this. Jesus opens wide his arms. He says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden. I will give you rest. Come to me. He loves sinners. He, he really does love sinners. It is okay to come to him and be big, ugly sinners, clothed in his righteousness. Friends, the gospel says that he has chosen us, that he loves us, that he's ready to take our lives and transform them. He's ready to come into our hearts and transform our lives from the inside out. He's ready to be with us forever. That unending love is yours through faith in him. So let us come to him and take off our mask and enjoy, enjoy his grace here. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you.